welcome to Emmanuel or God with us, a podcast designed to help enhance your study of the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week's content will cover 1 Nephi 11 through 15. All right, let's go ahead and dive right in to 1 Nephi chapter 11. Um, The first several verses here are a continuation of something that Nephi had just talked about in chapter 10, about his desires to know the mysteries of God and to know the things that his father about know about the things that his father had seen um, and and just his deep desire to know those things and this is manifested in what Nephi does in the first several verses here in chapter 11 it says for it came to pass that after I had desired to know the things that my father had seen and believing that the Lord was able to make them known unto me as I sat pondering in mine heart I was caught away in the spirit of the world Lord Yea, even into an exceedingly high mountain, which I had never before seen, and upon which I had never before set my foot. So, a few different things here. You notice as I read it, called out some things that are essential for revelation. Uh, Desire, belief that God can make those things known, and then the concept of pondering. Uh, Then additionally... Nephi's location is very important. Uh, Mountain is synonymous many times in the scriptures with temple. So this could be a a temple experience for Nephi. Um, As we think about the idea of revelation here, um, I really want to focus on the idea of pondering. Uh, I think, you know, President McKay said this, I think we pay too little attention to the value of meditation, a principle of devotion. Meditation is the language of the soul. It is defined as a form of private devotion or spiritual exercise consisting in deep, continued reflection on some religious theme. Meditation is a form of prayer. Meditation is one of the most secret, most sacred doors through which we pass into the presence of the Lord. Um, And... Gerald N. Lund also said this, Take time to ponder and reflect. Get away from the bustle of life. Find a quiet place and take time to simply sit and think, to listen to your thoughts and feelings, to open yourself to the promptings of the Spirit. Note what the following prophets said they were doing prior to receiving important revelations. And he references Nephi. Uh, He references Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon in section 76. He references Joseph F. Smith in section 138 with the vision of the spirit world. And he goes on to say, Sometimes we must deliberately put aside the cares of the world, put aside the rush of our daily lives, and find a quiet place and a quiet time where we can sit and ponder and reflect and meditate and listen for that still small voice that whispers. So I think this is a really powerful uh, principle here that, as President McKay says, is something that maybe we take for granted or don't talk about or focus on enough. And uh, I've had personal experiences with this where in the early morning hours as I get into the scriptures, I find answers to my questions. Um, I have spiritual experiences that there's no way I would have otherwise if I wasn't taking some time uh, in the quiet to set aside other things and to really focus on the spirit. So 
just uh, encourage you that as you think about President Nelson's teachings over the last several years, and especially his first talk as the prophet, you know, revelation for the church or for our lives, where he talked about the importance of personal revelation, that's where this really can hit home for us is if we can focus on these things, we can develop that desire, we can believe that God will manifest his will to us, that he will talk to us, and then to take time to ponder. And uh, this concept of doing this in the temple uh, or in a mountain place, I think is a really, really powerful principle. Um, I know I've had several experiences in the temple where I sincerely don't think I would have had that same experience in another place. Um, there's a special spirit there in the temple, a symbol of the presence of the Lord. And if you think about in the scriptures, some different experiences that have happened in quote-unquote temple or mountain locations, uh, you have the Ten Commandments, you have the Mount of Transfiguration where uh, the disciples uh, hear the voice of Heavenly Father. So many different experiences happen in the scriptures in the temple. Uh, you know, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery in the Kirtland Temple. Uh, there's, there's just so many proofs throughout the scriptures of the importance of revelation and being in the temple to receive that revelation. You know, President Nelson himself discussed that when he had to choose uh, his counselors and choose new apostles, that he went to the temple to distinguish that revelation, to receive that revelation. So if you have questions and you have concerns and you have things that you really need to know and you need God to speak to you, uh, I think Nephi's example here of being in the temple and believing and pondering and desiring those things can be a powerful guidance for us. Likewise, I think it's important to recognize the last phrase in verse 1, which I never had before seen and upon which I had never before, I never had before set my foot. Sometimes we think we have to go and be in familiar places or familiar settings, uh, and sometimes we're afraid to try new things and go to new places. But this idea that Nephi had never been to this place before, never seen it before, and he's going to receive one of the great visions in all of Scripture. And I think that's an important principle for us to, to remember that sometimes we are going to be in unfamiliar places and be pushed to receive knowledge in, in places or in ways that we haven't before. So I really love that principle. So after verse one, um, you know, the spirit comes to Nephi and, and it should be noted here as we get through that the spirit talking with him is the Holy Ghost and appears to him in the form of a man. Elder Bednar, Elder Talmadge and others have identified this spirit as actually the Holy Ghost. And he asks about Nephi's desires, and Nephi says, I want to see the things that my father has seen. And the spirit says, well, do you believe that your father saw the tree? And Nephi says, yeah, I believe all the words of my father. And the Holy Ghost here is quite excited about Nephi's response and kind of has this 
little verse of praise, if you will. Uh, Hosanna to the Lord, the most high God, for he is God over all the earth, yea, even above all. And blessed art thou, Nephi, and this is critical, because thou believest in the Son of the most high God. So Nephi's faith in Jesus Christ is what leads the Spirit to be able to reveal to him this vision. And so that's this other critical piece to Revelation is that the faith must be centered in Jesus Christ. Uh, there's no power in you know, having belief in some worldly thing. It's having that faith in Jesus Christ. Um, that is critical to us being successful in getting the answers that we need, receiving the revelation that we need. So, uh, and just kind of a note here, going back to this concept of, of a temple, Nephi has this experience in the mountain. And if you look through chapters 11 through 15, I submit to you that you would find uh, each of teachings regarding each of the covenants that are in an endowment. You know, Elder Bednar gave a talk where he identified those clearly and spoke about them. Obedience, sacrifice, the law of the gospel, the law of chastity, the law of consecration. I think if you were to go through 1 Nephi 11 through 15 with that lens, particularly 11 through 14, you would see this idea of temple covenants. And there's clear references to uh, temple imagery. For example, in 1 Nephi 12, 10 through 11, with a discussion of garments being made white through the blood of the Lamb, which we'll get into here in a minute. And especially in chapter 14, verse 14, where it, where it specifically talks about the power of Christ come, or the Lamb of God coming upon the saints of the church of the Lamb the covenant people of the Lord, that they were armed with righteousness with the power of God and great glory. We're going to come back to this again, but temple imagery is throughout this vision. So very interesting to think about that. You know, people say, oh, well, the temple stuff isn't taught in the Book of Mormon. On the contrary, it's very clear here. We'll see some other examples uh, like with King Benjamin in the beginning of Mosiah. So uh, encourage you to maybe take a look at 11 through 14, these chapters through that lens. All right, so chapter 7, or sorry, verse 7 and chapter 11. Uh, I want to just walk through this, and uh, I remember a friend of mine that I used to teach with who um, really helped me to understand the importance of doing this. But when you go through the the Book of Mormon, it's really important to notice specific words. And in verse 7, uh, it's very critical. It says, Behold, this thing shall be given unto thee for a sign, that after thou hast beheld the fruit, the tree, which bore the fruit which thy father tasted, thou shalt also behold a man descending out of heaven, and him shall you witness. And after you have witnessed him, ye shall bear record that it is the Son of God. And the it goes back to the reference of the tree or the fruit. So we know clearly because of that verse that the tree, the fruit, they are symbols of Jesus Christ. And so, again, just an example here of uh, studying the scriptures carefully to make sure that we catch the true meaning there and that we don't miss things. And in verse 7, I want to 
call out a couple of things and you'll see here in the next few minutes, there's going to be a, a focus on women and mothers. Uh, so first in, in verse seven here, when it talks about the tree, I want to bring up that multiple times throughout the scriptures that this idea of the tree is also a reference to the cross. For example, in 1 Peter 2 or in Acts chapter 5, that there's references to Jesus being on the tree or the cross. And so I think if we look at it from this perspective, it becomes this verse 7 becomes a very, very interesting uh, verse to study. So this idea of the tree bore the fruit. And if you look at the 1828 Webster's Dictionary, which is important because this is, you know, the, the verbiage at the time, and we'll come back to this idea of definitions throughout today. Bore means to support, to sustain, as to bear a weight or burden. All right, so we can think about what was the weight or the burden that Jesus was bearing on the cross. And what was the fruit or the result of what he bore on the cross? And you can answer that question for yourself. Another definition of bore, to bring forth or produce. Okay, what did Jesus bring forth or produce? What was the fruit of him being on the cross? Uh, that's really powerful to think of. And then he, and then the, the last definition I want to review here is to give birth to or be in the native place of. What did Jesus give birth to on the cross? And you can start to consider some of the scriptures in the Book of Mormon, especially in Mosiah chapter 5, verse 7, that we become the children of Christ, that we're born of him, uh, that we have new life because of him. Now, Elder Holland gave a talk a few years ago that I think is interesting here. So for context, thinking about Jesus on the cross, and he makes several statements there. The one I want to spend a, a minute or two on is the statement, Behold thy mother. Now, we know he was talking to John and was likely referencing Mary and telling John that Mary was sort of his mother, if you will, that Jesus was very interested in having his mother taken care of by John. But I think also, and Elder Holland references this, that he may have been alluding to something else. When Jesus says, behold thy mother, he may also have been saying, look at me, look at how what I am doing is similar to what a mother does. And Elder Holland talks about this in an October 2015 conference talk called Behold Thy Mother. He says this, prophesying of the Savior's atonement, Isaiah wrote, He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. A majestic Latter-day vision emphasized that Jesus came into the world to bear the sins of the world. Both ancient and modern scripture testified that he redeemed them and bore them and carried them all the days of old. A favorite hymn pleads with us to hear your great deliverer's voice. Bear, born, carry, deliver. These are powerful, heartening, messianic words. They convey help and hope for safe movement from where we are to where we need to be, but cannot get without assistance. These words also connote burden, struggle, and fatigue, words most appropriate in describing the mission of him who at unspeakable cost lifts us up when we have fallen, carries us forward when strength is gone, delivers us safely home when safety seems far beyond our reach. My father sent me, he said, that I might be lifted up upon the cross, 
that as I have been lifted up, even so should men be lifted up to me. But can you hear in this language another arena of human endeavor in which we use words like bear and born, carry and lift, labor and deliver? As Jesus said to John while in the very act of atonement, so he says to us all, Behold thy mother. Today I declare from this pulpit what has been said here before, that no love and mortality comes closer to approximating the pure love of Jesus Christ than the selfless love a devoted mother has for her child. When Isaiah, speaking messianically, wanted to convey Jehovah's love, he invoked the image of a mother's devotion. Can a woman forget her second child, he asks? How absurd, he implies, though not as absurd as thinking Christ will ever forget us. This kind of resolute love suffereth long, and is kind, seeketh not her own, beareth all things. Uh, And then he goes on to say this, You see, it is not only that they, mothers, bear us, but they continue bearing with us. It is not only the prenatal caring, but the lifelong caring that makes mothering such a staggering feat. Of course, there are heartbreaking exceptions, but most mothers know intuitively, instinctively, that this is a sacred trust of the highest order. And so I think here begins this concept that we can start to think of this concept of how what mothers do is like what Christ does. You think about a mother when she gives birth to a child going to the brink of death to give life, give new life, that the Savior went to actual death to give life to us. And the reason why this becomes even more powerful is because now Nephi is going to be seeing some other things. So in verse 8, he sees the tree that he's been wanting to see. And the spirit says, look. And so Nephi looks and sees the tree. And Nephi's like, okay, I see the tree. And then the spirit says, what do you want? And Nephi says, I want to know the interpretation. And so then the, the Spirit shows him in verse 13, the city of Jerusalem. And then he sees a virgin, and she was exceedingly fair and white. Now, I'm going to come back to those words here in just a second, because they don't mean what, uh, what we sometimes assign them to mean. So he sees Jerusalem, then he sees Mary, okay, and he says, okay, what do you see? And Nephi says, okay, I see a virgin, most beautiful and fair above all other virgins. And then the Spirit says, do you know the condescension of God? You know, and condescension is this idea of coming down from, uh, descending from a rank or dignity. So you have condescension can be Heavenly Father condescending to be the father of a um son who will live in mortality. And then you have the condescension of Jesus Christ to come from his place of royalty as Jehovah God to come to mortality and be born in a stable. You also have his condescension in the Garden of Gethsemane, this idea of a second condescension. So he, the Spirit says, do you know the condescension of God? And I love Nephi's response here. And he says, I know that he loveth his children. Nevertheless, I do not know the meaning of all things. And we're going to come back to this again in a second here. But it's apparent that Nephi still doesn't understand the interpretation of the tree yet. So then the spirit says, behold, 
The virgin whom thou seest is the mother of the Son of God after the manner of the flesh. Quick note here that if the Spirit specifically says after the manner of the flesh, there must also be a mother after the manner of the Spirit. Interesting little thought to think about there. And it came to pass that she, Mary, was carried away in the Spirit. And then the angel, the Spirit says, look again. And this time Nephi looks and he sees Mary with a child in her arms. And the angel says, behold the Lamb of God, even the Son of the Eternal Father. Now do you know the meaning of the tree? And Nephi says, Yea, it is the love of God which sheddeth itself abroad in the hearts of the children of men. Wherefore, it is the most desirable above all things. And he spake unto me, saying, Yea, and the most joyous to the soul. So, in order to teach the interpretation of the tree, it's not just that the angel shows Nephi Christ, but he shows Christ's earthly mother giving, like bringing him forth, giving birth to him. And a mother with a child is what finally helps Nephi to understand what God's love is. And so it just really reinforces this idea from Elder Holland that there's no other example in mortality that is quite like a mother and a child to illustrate the love of God. The sacrifice that is required, it's... Um, so powerful. And I think about the experiences I've had a chance to watch my wife do this nine different times. And, you know, we have pictures of just right after the birth takes place in that moment when Amber gets to hold the child that she just gave birth to. And I would call that one of the more sacred and holy moments that I have been a part of with each one of my children seeing that moment when she is able to hold that child after bearing, delivering them, and in what she had to do over the last nine months to get that child there. And it's such a powerful example of what Jesus Christ does for us and the opportunity that we have for new life. Um, so just encourage you to think about and thank the mothers in your life um, for what they've done and how they've taught you about God's love through their sacrifice and through their bearing and delivering. So um, just love thinking about that. I, I want to come back to a couple things I kind of referenced as we went through those verses. Um, first, really quick, in verse 13, it's really important here that we don't get caught up in this whole skin pigmentation uh, discussion that you know Nephi calls Mary fair and white. Well, let's look at what those words actually mean and then look at the context of the situation. Um, so first, white. Uh, definition, having the color of purity, pure, clean, free from spot, as white-robed innocence, pure, unblemished, in a scriptural sense, purified from sin, sanctified. So that's the, the clear definition here that Nephi is referring to. It's not skin pigmentation. And that's reinforced by other references in the scriptures, such as Isaiah 1, uh, verse 18, come now, and let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. 
though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So this idea of, of color is being used for purity rather than uh, an actual skin pigmentation color. Um, and that's referenced over and over again, especially in the book of Revelation, um, talking about the white garment, the garments made white through the blood of the lamb. So secondly, the other term here that's used to describe Mary is fair. And sometimes people want to say fair skinned, but the actual definition has way more to do uh, with actual, you know, like beauty pleasing to the eye is one definition, but also this idea of purity, clear, pure, free from extraneous matter, unspotted, untarnished. Okay? So um, thinking about these, just uh, making sure that we don't get caught up in this whole idea of skin pigmentation. That's a, an issue that's come up a few times. So, um, And then just kind of the last thing I want to touch on in this little group of verses in, is verse 17. This is one of the more important verses in this chapter, I think, because of what it teaches us. Okay. Nephi doesn't know everything. He doesn't know all the answers. But he says, but I do know that God loves his children. And so this idea of you know enough. You may not know everything, but you know enough. Uh, I have a lot of questions a lot, a lot of questions. Uh, but there's some things that I do know that are foundational that I've come to know through experiences and relying on those things that we do know, even when we have additional questions and just staying firm on what we do know and standing strong until the additional answers come is so important. And Elder Anderson gave a story and it illustrates this point. He says, I once visited a mission in Southern Europe. I arrived on the day a new missionary was preparing to return home at his, at his own insistence. He had his ticket to leave the next day. We sat together in the mission president's home. The missionary told me about his challenging childhood, of learning disorders, of moving from one family to another. He spoke sincerely of his inability to learn a new language and adapt to a new culture. Then he added, Brother Anderson, I don't even know if God loves me. As he said those words, I felt a sure and forceful feeling come into my heart. He does know I love him. He knows it. I let him continue for a few more minutes, and then I said, Elder, I'm sympathetic to much of what you've said, but I must correct you on one thing. You do know God loves you. You know he does. As I said those words to him, the same spirit that had spoken to me spoke to him. He bowed his head and began to cry. He apologized. Brother Anderson, he said, I do know that God loves me. I do know it. He didn't know everything, but he knew enough. He knew God loved him. That priceless piece of spiritual knowledge was sufficient for his doubt to be replaced with faith. He found the strength to stay on his mission. So just, I, you know, I have so many friends, so many family members, people that I know who wrestle with questions. I wrestle with questions. Uh, when you come to those points where you're unsure of things, rely on what you do know, and that is enough. You know enough to know that God loves you. You know enough to know that Jesus Christ gave his life for you. There's some basic foundational truths that you know that can give you the strength to stay on your mission. 
your mission to continue to be a disciple of Christ. Elder Holland talks about this in his talk, Lord, I Believe. He talks about the, the story of the man who wants Jesus to heal his son and says to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And this idea of starting first with what you know. And one of my favorite little statements from Elder Holland's talk here that relates to what Nephi's experience is here is the size of your faith or the degree of your knowledge is not the issue. It is the integrity you demonstrate toward the faith you do have and the truth you already know. And so I just uh, testify that when God has given us opportunities to come to know certain things, that we can rely on those things even when we have questions about others. Uh, so just remember and write down those things that you do know um, and and recognize those experiences when you've felt God's love and, and hang on to those. Uh, you know, I had an experience just talking to my wife yesterday um, where it's been a minute since I've knelt down and prayed with my younger kids and she was doing it with Jaron. And when she talked about it and went in to kneel down with them to pray with him, I remembered that I had done that quite frequently um, with some of my older kids and just remember how sacred and holy those experiences are to kneel next to a bed with a little child and to listen to them pray. And just the times that I've done that where I truly felt God's love for me, for them, and felt how sacred and how holy that communication was. And, you know, related to this was an experience I had with my six-year-old, Jaron. Um, he has a bit of a struggle wanting to go to bed on time. And he was, you know, arguing and fighting about going to bed. And uh, I was not handling it very well. And I had a little prick from the spirit to remind me of how I needed to handle the situation. And I sat down with him on the stairs and just explained why he needed to go to bed, why I needed to go to bed and, you know, asked him if he could please do it. And he responded so beautifully and gave me a big hug. And I just felt God's love at that moment, knowing that despite the fact that I had really messed up, on the interactions thus far in the evening that at that point that I had done something that was helping my son feel God's love and and I felt that through that experience as well. So just hold on to those moments, remember those moments and when you have questions, rely on the things that you have learned and felt before. So... um Moving moving on in this chapter, a couple other things uh, that I think are very interesting. Um, verse 25, it came to pass that I beheld that, that the rod of iron which my father had seen was the word of God. And I mentioned this uh, last week, but I want to emphasize this again. And I would encourage you to make this a part of your scripture study. Whenever you come across the phrase, the word of God, Remember that in John chapter 1, verse 1, that John refers to Jesus as the Word, the Word of God, the Word, Logos, or expression, 
of God. He is the expression of the Father. And so this idea of the rod of iron, yes, it can certainly refer to the Scriptures, but what is the ultimate purpose of Scripture? The ultimate purpose of Scripture is to come to know Jesus Christ. So the rod is really our personal relationship and our hanging on to, for dear life, Jesus Christ. And so just when as you read, if you think about it this way, and I beheld that Christ, which my father has had seen, led to the fountain of living waters or to the tree of life, which waters are a representation of the love of God. Ultimately, as we hold on to Christ, that's what we are holding on to. We're holding on to God's love and being led to God's love, to feel God's love and to receive the blessings of God's love. So just a little point there to um, call out to as you study to try that, that as you come across that phrase, word of God, to insert Jesus and to recognize that he is the word. Okay, next in, in verse uh, 31, uh, I love this verse. Nephi gets a chance to see Jesus's mortal ministry. <clears throat> he sees Christ going forth among the children of men. And when you read this, whenever you see the word all, it's important to recognize. I think it's really faith building. And I beheld multitudes of people. This is in chapter 11, verse 31. Multitudes of people who were sick and who were afflicted with all manner of diseases and with devils and unclean spirits. And the angel spake and showed all these things unto me. And they were healed by the power of the Lamb of God, and the devils and the unclean spirits were cast out. So whatever your disease or devil or unclean spirit or whatever you need healing from, there's this idea of all, okay, all manner that Christ healed. So if he healed all manner, he can surely heal yours. Uh, last thing in, in chapter 11 is, and it relates to this some discussions we've had earlier in this chapter, but the one of the focal points of this chapter is that Nephi sees that Jesus was lifted up upon the cross and slain for the sins of the world. Okay, now, not that um, Gethsemane is not important because it is definitely important, but when Nephi sees Christ's ultimate culmination of, of his mission, it is on the cross. Because in Gethsemane is where he took sin into himself, that he became sin. But on the cross is where that sin died, which is where it becomes meaningful for, uh, for us, that because sin died with him, that we have a chance to accept his forgiveness. Not a question of whether he will forgive us, but if we are we willing to receive it. And so even though as, as Latter-day Saints, there's been this sort of culture surrounding the symbol of the cross uh, that it can a lot of times be challenging for us and maybe we distance ourselves from that symbol. The reality is that the scriptures all over the place are using this symbol to help us remember what Christ has done. That becomes the, the ultimate symbol for Christ's saving mission to redeem us and to purchase us and to uh, for us to have a chance to receive forgiveness and ultimately eternal life. So just encourage you to recognize that and to see that symbol throughout the scriptures um, as illustrated beautifully by Nephi here in chapter 11. All right, let's move on to chapter 12, but making sure that we connect it with um, chapter 11. So uh, over and over again in chapter 11, Nephi is invited to look, and it says, and then he looked, and then he beholds, right? 
So we see this again in, in chapter 12 and throughout the remaining chapters in this vision where the angel says, look, where the spirit says, look, and if Nephi doesn't look, what would happen? Uh, and you and I are not necessarily seeing this vision, but we are invited to look. And Nephi says in verse four, you look at all the different, I saw, I saw, I saw. And in other places he says, I beheld. And he says, I heard. So we are invited to look and behold and see and hear. And when we are willing to look in the right way and look for Christ in everything, then we see, then we hear, then we behold. And so just that concept of our willingness, our desire to actually look, to follow through and look, the Holy Ghost is constantly inviting us to look and to see things that help point us to Jesus Christ. Um, so just encourage you to, to kind of think through that. And what are we invited to look for? When are we invited to look? And what are we invited to see? And can we see the things that are in the scriptures in a new light when we actually look with real intent? So love thinking about that. Um, such an important principle in learning and teaching. Uh, then in verse 10 and 11, I referenced this earlier, this idea of garments being made white in the blood of the lamb. This is temple imagery. Anytime you see garments and everything in the temple is focused on Jesus Christ. What I wanted to just mention here is this idea of an exchange, that Jesus is making an exchange with us. He is giving us his clean white garments in exchange for our sins, our dirty garments in exchange for clean ones. And he takes upon himself though that those dirty ones. So when he comes again, it's going to be in a red robe. Sometimes we see these paintings and these illustrations where he, he's coming in a white robe, but it's completely non-scriptural. Everything in the scriptures indicates that he will come in a red robe. And I think one of the great uh, symbols of that is this idea of the great exchange that we give our dirty, filthy garments, and in return, we are given clean white garments. And it's, it's such a contradiction to think of garments being made white in the blood of the Lamb, but it is not a contradiction when you think of exactly how that's happening, that Jesus is taking our filthiness upon him, inside of him, and that's dying with him on the cross, and he's giving us in exchange his righteousness, his holiness, his purity, his goodness. And so that exchange is what allows us to have garments that are made white in the blood of the lamb. So Nephi is seeing uh, a history of his people in, in chapter 12. And uh, he sees a whole bunch of different things. And then he starts to get into some of the symbols from the vision that his father saw and that he um, has seen now as well. So I want to spend just a few minutes on some of these um, symbols in the vision. So verse 16, the fountain of filthy water um, is the, the depths of hell. And the, it's interesting, we'll get into this a little bit later, that Lehi didn't really notice the filthiness of the water. So I want to talk about that a little bit, that symbol a little bit more um, as we get into... Uh, later chapters. I think it's chapter 15. 
But chapter, uh, verse 17, I think, is really important. Um, I had a powerful experience just thinking about it in this way. So the mists of darkness are the temptations of the devil, which blindeth the eyes, hardeneth the hearts of the children of men, leadeth them away into broad roads that they perish and are lost. So first of all, the idea of broad roads, you think about temptations, Mosiah chapter 4, 29 and 30, King Benjamin says, look, there's so many ways you can commit sin, diverse ways and means, so many that I can't number them, and he goes through and lists out a few. But thinking about mists of darkness, in this vision, what are the mists of darkness doing? The mists of darkness are obscuring the path, which is Jesus, the rod, which is Jesus, the tree and the fruit, which is Jesus. Temptation is therefore anything that obscures the view of Jesus or distracts from the view of Jesus. Thinking about temptation in that light opens up a whole new world, especially in today's modern age with technology. Anything that obscures the view or distracts from Jesus. And when we think about it that way, I think it can adjust the way we make decisions and the way we see temptations. Um, the temptation to spend a lot of time on our devices versus uh, doing really fruitless things and pursuing fruitless things where we could be pursuing Christ. And not that... Every time we get on our phone, you know, that we have to be looking at the scriptures, right? But just the idea of anything that, that obscures or distracts from the view of Jesus can become a temptation to us. I think that really needs to open our minds to um, what we are being tempted with, to identify when a phone or a TV or a computer becomes a temptation when it obscures our view or distracts from our view of Jesus. So just really was a powerful moment for me as I thought through this verse to kind of think about that for myself. Um, then in verse 18, the large and spacious building is the vain imaginations and the pride of the children of men. And when I, when I think of vain imaginations, this could mean a number of things. And of course, I invite you to consider what it means for you because I think the, the Holy Ghost can teach one of us individually. But something in vain, like it's fruitless, it's, it doesn't get to a point. So vain imaginations, in my mind, it's imagining that there's anything outside of God that can fulfill us completely. And when I say that, I include things such as family, marriage, you know, relationships, those kind of things, serving, you know, but imagining there's things, anything outside of God and his gospel and his way that could actually fulfill us. That's a vain imagination. And then the idea of pride. And I, I love um, what President Benson teaches about it pitting our will against God okay? and choosing our will over God's will. You know, at the root, pride is this idea of competition and it's our will competing with God's will and, and whether we're willing to give our will to God or whether we're going to seek our own will. 
And so thinking about these symbols maybe and just stopping and, and looking at what they did in the story and then what that means for us today, I think can be a, a really helpful exercise. So encourage you to take a, f- a few minutes and uh, look at that in chapter 12 and in the other symbols throughout this vision. All right, let's dig into chapter 13. Um, I want to just preface this by saying this is one of the coolest chapters in this vision because of the things that you see really clearly in here, just about history and what ends up happening. So um, first thing is chapter 13, and, and this comes up in chapter 14 as well, this idea that there's only two churches, the church of the Lamb of God and the church of the devil. And chapter 13 starts out by talking about this formation of this great and abominable church um, and all the things that the great and abominable church does and the desires in verse 8 of this great and abominable church, gold, silver, silk, scarlets, fine twined linen, precious clothing, harlots. Those are the desires of the great and abominable church. So really their desire is Babylon or the world. The members of this church that is where their focus is. The, to, to go back to chapter 12 and the idea of the mists of darkness, their temptations that obscure the view of Jesus are all the things in the world that can become our focus and become our desire and where we spend all of our time. And so that's where, where this church's focus. So many people want to assign you know, this great and abominable church to a certain sect. But that would be incorrect, especially when you consider um, chapter 14, verse 10, where clearly says uh, that there are two churches only. One is the church of the lamb. One is the church of the devil. So um, Stephen Robinson gives a great quote. And in essence, what the, the quote says is membership in the church of the lamb is based more on who has your heart than who has your records. So just as there are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who are part of the Church of the Devil, uh, there are also members of other uh, Christian sects, uh, other religious sects, period, who are part of the Church of the Lamb because it's based on who has your heart, not who has your records. And so I think this this principle, this doctrine of who has your heart is really important to consider because it makes us a lot less judgmental about people in other faiths. I mean, I have dear, dear friends who are part of other uh, religious congregations where it is clear that God has their heart, that they are completely devoted to him and that they are giving their lives to him in the best way that they know how. And I have to think that Nephi is seeing those people and that this distinguishment between the church of God and the church of the devil is not about membership records. It's about who has your heart. Uh, Now, with that being said, I understand that being a part of the true and living church of Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that there are some ways that we can bring additional power into our lives, receive, I should say, receive additional power in our lives um, from Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ through 
things that are available only in this church, such as temple ordinances or the sacrament um, or additional books of scripture. But just remembering that membership in the church of the Lamb in this ultimate figurative sense here is based on who has your heart rather than your records, I think is really important for all of us to look inside of ourselves and think about. Uh, next, it goes into the history of the promised land, the Americas. And we see in verses 10 through 12, uh, we see Christopher Columbus described here. And you can think of the times when Christopher Columbus said, um, you know, who can deny but the Spirit of God gave me the fire to come here. And the fact that there was a lot of issues going on in the journey here and that there is this concept of praying and then the next day finding land, it's clear that he was guided by the Spirit. And there are plenty of quotes from, and statements from church leaders about um, the goodness of Christopher Columbus, uh, which runs completely contrary to the things that uh, people in the media want to say today about him uh, and wanting to degrade and denigrate him and put him as somebody who was evil and seeking for power, etc., etc. The reality is, is he wanted to expand this, to expand the Christian faith, to spread the gospel. And he was guided by the Spirit um, to this land. And so recognizing that I think is really important. Likewise, in verses 13 through 16, we see these prophecies of uh, essentially the pilgrims, right? Uh, that they were leaving captivity, which this is powerful. They were not literally in captivity, but they were in captivity because of the lack of religious freedom, which illustrates the importance of religious freedom. That uh, that is con anywhere where there's not religious freedom is considered captivity, so as we look at our situation today and some of uh, maybe the restrictions that are coming on religious freedom and expression, uh, we might want to consider the importance of that freedom. Because as you go through these verses, you start to see examples of the Revolutionary War and how God protected uh, and guided folks in the Revolutionary War so that they could um, become free it really illustrates the importance and the value of religious freedom. And if you look at what church leaders have said, and you can see that there's even entire study topics sections on religious freedom, um, it really helps us see why that's so important. And also, and it's interesting in the uh, verses here, that the, the illustration of humility in verse 16 the Gentiles who had gone forth out of captivity, the pilgrims, did humble themselves before the Lord and the power of the Lord was with them. And so this idea, idea that humility is actually power. Uh, in the world today, a lot of times people look down on humility, but the reality is humility leads to power. Why is that? Well, let's look at the Savior's example. He, his humility led him to be uh, constantly doing the Father's will. Likewise, if we are willing to accept, if we are humble enough to willing to be willing to accept God's will and direction in our lives, then that is where the real power comes. That is where God takes over in our lives and we are way more with Him than we could ever be on our own. So just thinking about that idea of humility and if you can think about some of the people that you know 
who are so humble that God governs and directs their lives and empowers their lives because of their humility. So love looking through that and, and again, love seeing in the next verses there that verses uh, 17 through 19 about how the in the Revolutionary War that the in the Americas they were delivered um, from Great Britain from their um, basically their mother Gentiles, right? Uh, that they were able to be delivered by God. And thinking through why that matters, because that, that paved the way, having America and the religious freedom here paved the way for Joseph Smith to have an opportunity to have his vision and to have the restoration be able to be successful because there was a place where there was religious freedom. And so just again, emphasizing the importance of that and thinking that the Savior is constantly offering freedom. That is what he offers. And so it's so important that we think about that concept. And then I love that it talks about here, you know, post-revolution or sort of during this and the pilgrims to it references, they did prosper in the land, they beheld up I beheld a book and it was carried forth among them. And it talks about how it was of great worth in verse 23 to this group of people. And this book is the Bible. And I think as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, sometimes we tend to look down upon the Bible. We have the eighth article of faith as far as it's translated correctly. Uh, but really recognizing how important the Bible is and that even though in in verses 24 through 33, we learned that there were some plain and precious parts taken from the Bible, that it's still of great worth. And when we start to, we come into these later verses, for example, in um, 34 and 35, that we see that other books are going to be coming forth and it establishes the truth of the first book or the Bible. Okay, and restores, and it's supposed to sort of bring everything together in one. And in them, verse 36, all these books shall be written, my gospel and my rock and my salvation. So that includes the Bible. So recognizing the importance of the Bible and recognizing God's mercy, as he references in verse 34, that in my mercy, I'm bringing forth all these books to give you this combination uh, of everything. So, um, and then it goes... So he goes through all these other books, verse 39, other books which came forth by the power of the Lamb, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, because we talked about the Bible and the Book of Mormon there uh, in the previous verses. And in verse 40 is where I want to focus. And the angel spake in me saying, these last records, so Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, which thou hast seen among the Gentiles shall establish the truth of the first Okay, the Bible, which are the twelve apostles of the Lamb, and shall make known the plain and precious things which have been taken away from them, and shall make known unto all kindreds, tongues, and people that the Lamb of God is the Son of the Eternal Father and the Savior of the world, that all men must come unto him, or they cannot be saved. So the central purpose of all scripture is to fill our souls with faith in God the Father and in his Son Jesus Christ. That is crystal clear in verse 40. And if you look at everything together, here, when you, and verse 41 says this, they will be established in one, there's one God, one shepherd over all the earth. If you cross-reference and go back and forth between the Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, 
everything really comes together in this great whole. And it's so beautiful to see how all the scripture works together. In fact, I've had multiple experiences, including one just last week where I'll slip in, I'll be talking to somebody who is of another Christian denomination, and I'll throw in a verse from the Book of Mormon or from the Doctrine and Covenants and just quote briefly from it in our discussion. And they automatically and even out loud assume that it's from the Bible because it rings true and it teaches the same doctrine, the same principles. And so just seeing these books all together as one is so, so very important to all of us. All right, moving to chapter 14 here. Um, President Nelson talks about this chapter and says, Nephi saw us. Imagine this, you know, he talks about Nephi saw us here in this chapter. It's our day, and it becomes clear in verse 7 that it's referring to our day because it teaches clearly the restoration the great and marvelous work that comes forth. And so thinking about this, it's interesting because Mormon, as he put together the book of Mormon, says, I speak unto you as if you're present, and yet you're not. But behold, Jesus Christ has shown you unto me, and I know you're doing. So he's seen our day. He knows what we need. And he put together the book of Mormon in such a way that it would be beneficial to us, that it would clearly show to us what we need. And... So it becomes interesting because chapter 14 is actually kind of not a long chapter. Uh, Mormon puts way more of chapter 11, 12, and 13 of the content there versus what he focuses on for our day, which leads me to believe that the couple of things that he does say in chapter 14 we need to pay really close attention to because they become the most clearly important to us. Okay, so um, the first is going back to the Church of God, Church of the Lamb. Interesting that that's in this chapter for our day, thinking about that. And I think when you see President Nelson's ministry, look at how often and he joins with leaders of other denominations who are good, good people doing good things. Listen to... Um, conference talks over the last several years since President Nelson has become the prophet and identify how many times they've talked about working in tandem with other religious denominations to do good and to bring about God's purposes in the world. So interesting to think about that. Uh, Perhaps even more importantly, or at least related to this, is verse 14. Okay. Right. I want to back up just a little bit in some other verses just to kind of lay the lay the groundwork here. Okay? Because this church of the devil, it's also ref- referenced as the great whore. Okay. Now we can get into some great detail here, but what is a whore? A whore is someone who doesn't have any fidelity. They leave pieces of themselves with different people all over. Okay. So it's this entire concept uh, or idea of a whore in comparison to members of the church of the lamb. Members of the church of the lamb are dedicated, loyal. They have fidelity. They're singular in a purpose. They're not leaving pieces of themselves all over the place. So 
This idea of a whore is used purposely to help us think through what does that mean? And what does that mean for who is a part of the church of the lamb versus a part of the church of the devil? So just wanted to throw that little thought in there. But verse 14 is so, so important. I referenced this earlier. Okay, so Mormon is speaking to us as if he sees our day, okay? And he really seems to focus on this verse 14. And in verse 14, it's been referenced a bunch of different times in general conference over the last few years. And you can see that if you download scripture citation index or go to scriptures.byu.edu, you can look up and see when verses are referenced in conference. You might take a minute and do that with 1 Nephi 14, 14. And in fact, um, Elder Bednar gave an entire talk just on this verse a couple years ago. Okay, So um, Sister Dew gave uh, a talk here. And I wanted to um, call out her some of her comments there. Um, she talked about stripling warriors and how they fought with, with uh, great power. And she says this, We will not win the battle in which we are engaged if we do not fight as with the strength of God. For the voices of Satan are noisy, relentless, and celebrated. The gap between the way men and women of God and the way men and women of the world live will only grow wider. But that's okay as long as we, as the Lord's covenant people, feel confident about who we are. We have every reason to, for when Nephi foresaw the Latter-day Church, he beheld the power of the Lamb of God, that it descended upon the saints of the Church of the Lamb and upon the covenant people of the Lord, who were scattered upon all the face of the earth, and they were armed with righteousness and with the power of God and great glory. Nephi was seeing you and me. We may be small numerically, but the influence of those armed with righteousness and the power of God and great glory will be felt far beyond our numbers. We can't win this battle alone, but we aren't required to, for it is in the strength of the Lord that we can do all things. And that process begins with our faith. And then um, in April 2016, talk called The Power of Godliness. Okay. Uh, just a few months before the death of the prophet Joseph Smith, he met with the 12 apostles to talk about the greatest needs the church was facing that very difficult time. He told them, we need the temple more than anything else. We need the temple more than anything else. If you think about um, President Nelson and how often he's taught about the importance of the temple and calling out that both men and women are endowed with priesthood power in the temple, that this verse just becomes a standout verse. Um, and, you know, my son, Jaron, I referenced him a couple times today, like we were driving one night and he sees the temple and it's all lit up and he immediately said, oh, that temple reminds me of Jesus, like the light and everything like that. And so when we say we need the temple more than anything else, we need the power that comes from Jesus Christ in that temple. And that's what becomes clear here in verse 14. And when you study about the endowment, it's this endowment of power. Okay, so these covenants and these ordinances in the temple bring power into our lives where even though we are few in number in comparison with the rest of the population of the world, that it becomes clear that there is a different power that is with the saints due to the temple covenants and ordinances. Um, and, and I have felt and experienced that power through those temple ordinances and just encourage you to, to seek that out as well. And to recognize in verse 17, 
that God is going to fulfill his covenants. He's made promises about the temple through his prophets. He's made promises about the last days. He's made promises about eternal life. And that everything he is doing, the work of the Father in verse 17, shall commence preparing the way for the fulfilling of his covenants. We can trust him absolutely. He will fulfill his words. Um, last thing I wanted to talk about in chapter 14 is there, it's always interesting to me. We have, uh, folks who are in other Christian faiths that bring up the, uh, verses at the end of the book of revelation, which say, if you add to, or take away from the words of this book, you know, you're going to have the plagues added to you, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure. A few of you have had that experience as well. Um, first of all, just the whole argument that the Bible wasn't even, you know, put together in that order at the time. John was by himself and didn't even know about um, other things. Certainly did not uh, anticipate that his book, that specific book of Revelation was going to be a part of a Bible. Um, and in addition to the fact that there were other books that were likely written after the book of Revelation. So that whole argument. But the point here in chapter 14 is that Nephi actually sees John writing the book of Revelation and the Savior specifically says, I've ordained John to write these things, so don't worry about writing them. And so to see how the Bible and the Book of Mormon really work together, I think is really powerful here at the end of chapter 14. All right, last chapter uh, for this week, chapter 15. Um, I want to just read these verses here at the beginning. So Nephi finishes his vision. It came to pass that after I, Nephi, had been carried away in the spirit and seen all these things, I returned to the tent of my father. And it came to pass that I beheld my brethren, and they were disputing one with another concerning the things which my father had spoken unto them. For he truly spake many great things unto them which were hard to be understood, save a man should inquire of the Lord. And they being hard in their hearts, therefore they did not look unto the Lord as they thought, as they ought. So, first of all, recognizing the revelation came from the Spirit, that Nephi in verse 1, contextually, he is in a difficult situation. This was not uh, a situation filled with ease that in the midst of some very difficult challenges is when he received this revelation. He's dwelling in a tent, had to leave everything that he knew at home, that he's living with contentious brothers uh, who are constantly bickering, fighting, murmuring, complaining, and even seeking Nephi and Lehi's life. So we can receive revelation even in the most challenging of circumstances. And then in verse 3, that so often we can't understand the things of God unless we ask um, and, and we're willing to do that. And Laman and Lemuel, their difference is they were not willing to ask. And so Nephi says, I was grieved because of the hardness of their hearts. And then in verse five, he says, and it came to pass that I was overcome because of my afflictions. For I considered that mine afflictions were great above all because of the destruction of my people, for I had beheld their fall. So this little woe is me moment from Nephi, all of us have them. Have those moments where like, oh, this is the worst. Like, I have it so hard. And Joseph Smith had this moment in Liberty Jail. And I think all of us could benefit from recalling what the Lord revealed to Joseph in that circumstance. So, so when we have these situations, when we think, man, my life is just really hard. Like everything is just piling up. I'm losing people I love. Um challenges with finances, whatever the case may be, that the Savior says, the Son of Man hath descended below them all. Art thou greater than he? 
to know that whatever circumstances you are experienced, experiencing, that the Savior has already experienced those, that he's gone below those, and because he has gone below those, he can lift you up above all of those things. Uh, so I think when we have those woe is me moments, that we can think about those words. We can think about um, Nephi. Yeah, he had those moments. It's okay. We can have those moments and those questions. Joseph Smith had the moment, had the question, but remembering that response, the Son of Man had descended below them all. Art thou greater than he? And to know and love the Savior for what he's done for us, that he can lift us up above all of those things. And then in verse 6, super important, just basic principle about life. After I had received strength, I spake unto my brethren. Okay, it's the, the analogy on the airplane that nobody ever pays attention to. But first, you got to put your own oxygen mask on before you can help anybody else. This is so, so important. Jesus said it to Peter. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. You have to receive your own spiritual strength before you can go and try to help other people. It's necessary for you to have that relationship in order to help others with that relationship. So just encourage you to look for and recognize I had personally a life-changing experience with this um, several years ago when my dad gave me a priesthood blessing. And in that blessing, he encouraged me to do some basic things to take care of myself, um, such as exercising, studying, just doing basic things that we sort of take for granted. But that has really altered the direction of my life in just focusing on taking care of myself in simple ways, physically, emotionally, spiritually, um, I can give so much more when I put my oxygen mask on first, when I have my relationship strong with Jesus Christ, and when my body is in a place where it can work with my mind and my spirit to have that relationship be strengthened. So um, just love that idea. So uh, last couple things I wanted to talk about uh, this week are in verse 14. This is such an important verse, um, talking about the people coming to know that they're the house of Israel, they're covenant people of the Lord, to know the gospel. The last line here, they come shall come to the knowledge of their Redeemer and the very points of his doctrine, that they may know how to come unto him and be saved. So Chad Webb, um, who's over seminaries and institutes, gave a great talk called that they may know how to come unto him and be saved. I encourage you to go and listen to or read that. It was at BYU Hawaii. That they may know how to come unto him and be saved is, is what the talk is called. And when we understand doctrine, okay, President Pactor says, understanding true doctrine changes behavior. And so rather than teaching behavior, we teach doctrine. We teach the truths about Jesus Christ. I can tell you to be a good person until I'm blue in the face. But if you feel the love that Jesus Christ had for you and that he loved you first before you ever did anything and that he gave his life for you and that when you understand that doctrine, that motivates you to change your behavior. So as we have focus on what we're going to do as leaders in the church or as leaders in our families, rather than teaching behaviors, teach doctrine. 
teach doctrine before behaviors because doctrine is what actually motivates us to truly change our behaviors because it's about the heart, not about just what we do. Um, and the next verse I love too, kind of cool that chapter 15, verse 15 connects directly with John 15, which is the parable of the vine and the branches, because Nephi uses this analogy and calls Jesus the true vine. And when you look at the, the parable of the vine in John 15, that Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. And if you get into just the actual gardening things, you think about a grapevine, um, when you prune a grapevine, it's called cutting and wounding. And then this sap comes out and it's called bleeding. Uh, I don't think that's incidental that all those things ended up being part of the culture there. And recognizing that as long as we are connected with the true vine, that that sap, his blood is constantly flowing into us to strengthen us, to empower us, um, to give us strength and nourishment, as verse 15 says. So as we all think about that analogy, we think about that Christ is constantly pushing and reaching out to us, that he's constantly trying to supply us with that strength and nourishment from his blood, uh, that really the only way we can not receive it is by restricting that flow by some means or by completely cutting ourselves off from him. But that even when you cut off the branch, that there's still the sap that comes out, like there's still that evidence of Christ's love of him trying to reach out to you. And so I just love thinking about it from that way and thinking about what that teaches us about the Savior, this parable of the vine, and thinking about him trying to give us that um, strength and nourishment. <clears throat> All right, uh, verse, skipping down to verses 31 through 35, there's this discussion between Nephi and his brothers, and it's almost this heaven and hell discussion. And it's kind of interesting because we... Um, Book of Mormon seems to be this heaven and hell concept, but then we have this whole, like in the New Testament, we have the celestial, terrestrial, telestial, and then Doctrine and Covenants teaches this as well. I think the the piece that brings us all together and that I invite us all to think about is in section 76, Doctrine and Covenants 76, verse 43. He, Christ, glorifies the Father and saves all the work of his hands except those sons of perdition who deny the Son after the Father has revealed him. Thus, the final state will include the grouping of saved individuals and unsaved individuals or sons of perdition. Saved individuals will include those who are allowed to enter a degree of glory. Okay, each degree, degree of glory is heaven. Okay, salvation within the kingdom of God incurs in all three degrees of glory, those who do not qualify the sons of perdition. So when it's this heaven and hell, it's like heaven three degrees of glory or hell. And I think sometimes we think of heaven only as a celestial glory, but seeing the mercy of God that how many people will receive heaven as a result of what Christ's work has done is so powerful to think about. It just teaches you something about him. He designed this plan for success and for our ultimate joy. He loves us. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about is in verse 36, last verse of the, the block for this week. The wicked are rejected from the righteous and also from that tree of life whose fruit is most precious and most desirable above all other fruits. Yea, and it is the greatest of all the gifts of God. And uh, I had this experience with my son Taft, who's now uh, a little older 
um, but he was four at the time, and he, we, my wife and I do these date nights with our kids where we have one-on-one -on -one time. So he wanted to go to McDonald's. Um, I begged him to not make me go there. I do not like McDonald's, sorry. Uh, but that's where he wanted to go, so I took him there. So we're sitting there just kind of chatting, having a good time. And Taft looks up from his chicken nuggets and says, Dad, do you know what my favorite, my most favorite food is? And I'm expecting him to say something about chicken nuggets. I was like, well, I, I'll go along with your game here. So I said, I don't know. What is your favorite food? And he responded, Dad, you know what it is. I said, no, I actually don't know what it is. What is your favorite food? He then said that his favorite food was the fruit of the tree of life because it was better than any other fruit. And, you know, I don't know how much this four-year-old child knew at the time about how true his statement is. But I think the innocence and purity of a child in sharing that can be a lesson to all of us. The most desirable, the most beautiful, the thing that is the best is the fruit of the tree of life. It's the blessings of the Savior's atonement. And again in verse 36, it says, and it singular is the greatest of all the gifts of God. It is the tree or the fruit. So now this becomes, and the greatest gift, Doctrine and Covenants 14, 7, is eternal life. But we know the tree and the fruit is Jesus. So what is eternal life? Eternal life is the life of Jesus. To live the life of Jesus, to become like him. Uh, C.S. Lewis has this great quote where he says, you know, the whole point here is that we become little Christ's. That's, that's the purpose. And we see that clearly in verse 36, that the greatest gift is to become like him, to live a Christ life, to receive his attributes, his righteousness, his goodness, and because of our humility and our dependence upon him and our seeking him, our looking and finding um, and, and it just all comes together from this vision for me here in this verse, that as we look, we see, we behold, we find, we find ourselves, we find him, and we find ourselves becoming like him. And that is the entire purpose of Heavenly Father's amazing plan of salvation. Thanks again, and we will see you next week.